Good morning. Thank you. Let's try that again. Good morning. We are in a series looking through the seven statements that Jesus Christ made from the cross, and we are on week five this morning. If you got your Bibles with you, if you could open them to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, you'll probably really need them because I'm going to mainly talk about one part of this. There's a couple verses in the context you'll want to be looking at. So John chapter 19, and we're going to mainly look at verse 28, and we're going to see the fifth statement that Jesus makes from the cross. So let me remind you of what the purpose of this series is. It's to prepare us for Easter. It's to get us ready to celebrate our resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this is all about trying as best we can to put ourselves there on Golgotha at the crucifixion as if we're there as an eyewitness to understand and to hear these words from our Lord and to let them resonate in our hearts so that we can grow in a greater appreciation of Jesus. Now listen, grow greater in our appreciation of Jesus, grow more determined in our desire to cling to the cross and to live out today, especially, an even more submissive life to God himself. Years ago, Denise and I went to Jim Thorpe, and we took a two-night stay. We stayed at the inn at Jim Thorpe, and I love mountain biking, and Jim Thorpe is like the mecca of northeastern mountain biking, at least it used to be. And so we went up there for a couple nights, and one of the things that we did while I was there was Denise agreed, let's go down to the local sports outfitter, get a map, and I'm going to go ride one of these trails. And so I did, and the map that they said, you're going to love this trail, it's called the Uranium Trail. And in my mind, you got to get this, I can't even make this up, in my mind, I picture this 18-mile trail being from the top of the mountain, meandering down pine-strewn trails to just coast my way back into Jim Thorpe. It's October. It is brisk. It is beautiful and sunny. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and I'm ready to go. Except, I didn't bring a water bottle, and I didn't bring a flat tire repair kit. I wasn't going to need it. It's a downhill ride. Pine needles don't puncture tires. This is going to be fun. Denise drops me off, drives me up to the top of the mountain, drops me off at the trailhead. I've got my map. I've got my cycle computer on my handlebars. I'm good to go. She leaves, goes back to the inn to enjoy a couple hours. We had our youngest child there, a little baby, Carissa. And so she went back home with Carissa, and I start this trail. I'm two miles in now to my ride, and I can't find the first trail marker. And I'm going back and forth, back and forth, and finally I look at the map, and it's revealed to me that I was, I told Denise the wrong trailhead. The right trailhead was a mile up the mountain. So I pedal now, back out to the beginning of the trail, back up the mountain for a mile. I'm exhausted. Now I start my 18-mile ride, and now it's quarter to four, and I'm getting a little bit anxious. This is October. There's a lot of bear in Jim Thorpe. So I start riding the trail, and all of a sudden, What I'd always read about in mountain biking magazines began to be true. Baby head rock is incredibly hard to pedal over. Baby head rock are trails that have rocks the size of a baby's head. And you're trying to pedal across of it. And I couldn't pedal it. 
I'm walking more than I'm pedaling. And now it's after four o'clock and I'm going, Lord, I, I need to figure a survival plan because my wife doesn't even know where I'm at. She dropped me off at the wrong trail at my fault. So now I'm panicking a little bit and I'm pedaling even harder and I'm trying to walk faster and pedal when I can. And I'm, I get to the part in the uranium trail where they used to drop the uranium down. It's almost, I mean, the vertical descent is crazy. My, I'm completely behind what's called your saddle, your seat and your bike, trying to not do an endo. And I'm going over two foot ledges, which to me was fun, but not when you're going that fast down hills and you can't stop. Finally, at the nine mile mark, halfway through, it dumped me out at the Lehigh River. But now I've got a major problem. It's five o'clock and I don't have a water bottle and I am so thirsty that my tongue won't even move anymore. I thought to myself, why didn't I bring water? In my mind, it was a meandering, lazy trail. This is just going to be a fun couple hours right back into town. Well, I've got the Lehigh River right there, right? Except 50 feet out from the banks is a blanket of scum. I'm not drinking that. And I'd always read that if you don't have water, take twigs and take rocks and stuff them in your mouth. So I got a mouthful of twigs and a mouthful of rocks, except it's not producing saliva. And now they're stuck in my mouth. I'm trying to scrape them out with my fingers. And I've got nine more miles to go. I'm praying, Lord, please, I will never do this again. I will always bring water. Will you just help me get back to the inn at Jim Thorpe? I ride into town on the outskirts of town, a quarter of a mile from the inn, and I hear, my back tire goes flat. I walk at the quarter of a mile to the inn at Jim Thorpe, and by this point, I can't tell you enough, my legs are shaking. I could hardly walk. And endurance sports is called the bonk. And I'm about there where my body won't even respond anymore to what I'm asking it to do. Somehow I pull myself up to two stories to the room that we were staying at. And Denise goes out and gets about a five, five bottles of water that I drank one after another, trying to rehydrate. I was dehydrated. Now, I don't know if you've ever been dehydrated. I don't know how thirsty you've ever been. But think right now in your mind, what's the thirstiest you've ever been in your entire life. Hold that thought in your mind, that experience, that story that like I shared my story, your story that goes along with that thirst. Hold that in mind. And let me review just a little bit as we catch up to where we are this morning. We started this series and I took you through a brutal, honest look at what crucifixion was like. The last 15 hours of Jesus' life from the upper room to the cross. And then we started the first statement. And if you remember the first statement, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. He's praying. He's asking God, his father, Lord, or Father, forgive them. Forgive them. Show mercy. And don't wait till I'm dead. Forgive them now. My blood is flowing. Be merciful now. And all of a sudden, the second statement, we see God's mercy, his response to the prayer of his son beginning to work. And mercy is just radiating out from the cross like a seismic wave. And all of a sudden, a criminal, a hardened career criminal, who's reviling and cursing him at the beginning of crucifixion, begins to worship him, begins to place his trust in him, begins to proclaim himself a sinner and Jesus, his Lord and Savior. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. 
That's the second statement. And then all of a sudden, the third statement, we see nearby the cross, a group of four women and the apostle John, one of whom is his mother. And he says, woman, which wasn't a derogatory term like it is today. Woman, behold your son, John. John, behold your mother. And what we learn from that is that if you are in the family of God, you are the brother and the sister of Jesus Christ, then his love for you even outdoes his considerable love for his own mother. That's the love that God has for you. That's what it means to be adopted into the family of God. And then last week we saw in his fourth statement that utter horrible, agonizing cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we see that all the ocean of all of the sins, our sins, making up that dark quagmire of filth was poured out on the sun's head at noon. Darkness in the middle of the day comes to the land, maybe the entire earth. We don't know. The word can mean land or earth. And all of a sudden it's dark at midday for three hours as the Father, Holy Father, is pouring our sins and our guilt and His wrath onto the head of Jesus, just like the Jewish fathers would put their hands on the head of the Lamb just before they would sacrifice it, symbolizing his and his family's sins passed to that innocent substitute. And he took his face, the father, and he looked away from his son. And we saw the blessing, the Jews looked at blessing as being the face of God's favor toward you and cursing his face turned away from you. And there's no place of greater forsakenness and greater cursedness than hell. And what we learned last week is that Jesus suffered the agony of an eternal life in hell during those three hours. He suffered that so that we wouldn't have to. And what we're going to see today is that one of the terrible physical realities of crucifixion was the agony of thirst. We don't think that way. We don't think that thirst would be that much, but they tell us, historians and experts do, that thirst was one of the worst parts, if not the worst parts, of being crucified. So with that mindset, my story that God is thinking about water and thirst, and your own story that you're holding on to, let's bring that now into three perspectives that we can have, at least three when he says, I thirst. The first one is this, and I want you to really think this morning, and it's going to get deeper as we go. His thirst proved his humanity. Now, why is this important? You know, it's hard for most of us. It really is. It's just hard for most of us to understand the importance of water. Now, let me ask you a personal question. Last Thanksgiving, the traditional time that we sort of mentally compile our thank you list to God? Did water even make your top 100 things you're thankful for? We don't think like this, Tim. It probably did with you because Tim goes around the world installing water purification systems for impoverished communities. But we don't think like this. Water was everything in the Old Testament. Listen, if you had land and you, and you discovered a spring on your land. Wars erupted over land rights because a spring was like today, oil. 
What, de- what determined the value of land in the Old Testament was the presence of water like the presence of oil does today. Wars would erupt. Boundary markers would be moved. Because if you discovered that spring, all of a sudden your neighbor would move his boundary marker and say, no, that was my land, that's my spring Thank you for digging it out and discovering it. Well, listen, without water, you can't, you can't keep your livestock alive. Water was everything. Do you remember when Moses was leading Israel through the wilderness? Do you remember the rebellion that rose up because the people were thirsty? They'd rather be in Egypt where they had pots and meats and leeks and vegetables rather than out here thirsting to death. Thirst drove their rebellion. You've got streams and you've got fountains. And these are metaphors all through the Psalms, all through the songs of Israel that illustrated joy and happiness and God's grace. Water and springs were everything. You get to Ezekiel, and all of a sudden you see this imagery, this vision that Ezekiel sees, that he stepped his feet into a a river, and then he kept walking, and it came up to his shoulders, basically. Well, that was a metaphor of God's grace of salvation that is so deep. It's a river that flows from God to his people. It's the same metaphor that Jesus picked up in John chapter 7. When he talked about springs of living water, it's the eternal life that he offered. Water and thirst are themes all through the Bible, and it starts at the physical level. And as you're going to see this morning, it goes deeper and deeper to greater significance. So you need to pay very, very close attention to the fifth statement. And we've got to see and understand what Jesus is really saying. Now, let me get you into the picture. You're at Golgotha. You're at the hill, the skull hill. And you're standing there. Imagine it with holy imagination. You're standing there now nearby the cross. And Jesus, along with two criminals, they're impaled on their crosses. And it's midday at at noon. And now it's just before three o'clock when you hear Jesus say, I thirst. It's dark. It's been dark for three hours in the middle of the day. Nobody can explain it. Where's the darkness coming from? But you're up on this hill, and this hill overlooks the city of Jerusalem. And as you turn away from Jesus for a moment, and you look over the city, all of a sudden you remember what Josephus has told us. He's a Roman historian. He says that during the Passover, 2,700,000 Jews would cram their way inside Jerusalem. So this city is bustling. It's a festival. It's the feast. It's the festival of unleavened bread. It's eight days long. It begins with the Passover feast. There are almost three million Jews. It is is three o'clock in the afternoon, as dark as night. Torches are lit. Lamps are lit. There is celebration, a little bit of concern because they don't know why it's dark, but it's a cacophony of joyous noise. And the Passover, remember, the Passover is all about how God freed his people from the slavery to Egypt. Remember? It's all about how their God freed them from Egypt, which, if you think about it, is pretty ironic because all throughout Jerusalem during the Passover are hundreds, maybe thousands of Roman soldiers. 
You see, they're there because their job is to keep the peace. With three million Jews crammed into a city, it was a tinderbox ready to be lit. Because you had these crazy people called zealots. The zealots formed a murderous band of assassination. They took these little daggers. They had their own name for their daggers, which were hidden in their cloaks. And they'd come up behind Roman citizens, because they hated Rome. And they'd stick the dagger in the kidney of the Roman citizen and then blend back into the crowd before anybody could see him. And this was always happening. And so you've got Pilate that's now in the city, and you've got thousands of Roman guards now in the city to keep the peace, drawn there, recruited there from the outlying garrisons. And how ironic that the Passover, celebrating God's freedom from the bondage of Egypt, now you can see all around you the evidence that they're still in bondage. Now it's to Rome. And then up on this hill of Golgotha, you see the one that God brought to lead them out of bondage, but not to Rome. He le- he's leading them out of the bondage of sin. The evil, heinous, powerful, slavery-inducing bondage of sin. This is who's on that cross and being impaled as we're there imagining this. And he's minutes from dying. And you know, you know he's minutes from dying because... Right now, his lungs are filling with water. And he's heaving himself on that cross. This is what they did in crucifixion right before they died. They heaved, he heaved himself on that cross trying to get air out of his lungs, which now can't even get much air in them because of the water. It's around April. It's 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Temperatures at that time in Jerusalem were in the mid-70s. It's warm. And he's suffering from the symptoms of serious, fatal dehydration. He's already been weakened by 12 hours of trials and torture. And he's got painful cramps traveling through him in waves. If you've ever had a cramp in one part of your body, imagine it going throughout your whole body in a wave. This is what happens in severe dehydration. He can no longer sweat. His body, your, our bodies sweat in order to cool themselves. There's not the water in his body to even sweat. He has a splitting headache, dropping blood pressure. His heart's beginning to pump harder. His blood is thickening and turning to sludge. This is what's happening in his body. And you're there and you're seeing Jesus on that cross. His kidneys are beginning to shut down. His lips are undoubtedly cracked. His tongue swollen to the point where he can hardly move. His eyes, you can't blink. He couldn't blink moisture back into his eyes. There's no moisture in his body to even work that way. And we're told what I've already, I remind you of what I've already told you, that one of the worst parts of crucifixion is thirst. In fact, if you were in Sweden and you understood the Swedish language, you would know that in Sweden, the words for fire and thirst are related. That's why it's called a burning thirst. It feels like your mouth is on fire. It is agonizing. And somehow Jesus, while you're there listening, he unsticks his tongue and he says what is two words in English, but one word in the original Greek, I thirst. And with that word, he proves his humanity and he begins decimating the heresies that were alive and well 
in his day. Let me explain. Remember, his thirst proved his humanity. See, the New Testament is battling a heresy. The entire Gospel of John is written to battle this heresy. Paul's battling it in Colossians and throughout his epistles. And here's what this heresy believed, this heretical sect, that God is pure spirit. Now, we know God is spirit. But they balance that with everything in matter, your body, everything you can see and touch is corrupt. It is evil. It is fallen. God is pure spirit. Everything in matter is pure evil. God could never take on flesh because flesh is evil. So they taught that Jesus, Jesus never took on flesh. He never became human. He was a phantom. This is what they taught. By the way, don't you remember the words of Thomas, who has grown up with his heresy all around him, saying, I will not believe that he is arisen from the dead unless I can put my fingers in his nail holes. Why do you think he said that? It's because this heresy taught that Jesus never was human to begin with. He was a phantom. That when he went on to the cross, he never could feel pain. He never felt pain. He was just an immaterial body that looked like a human being. By the way, this is not eradicated today. You do need to know there's this thing called the Jesus Seminar, and it has sprouted out into liberal theology all over the place. Jesus Seminar takes the four Gospels and all of the supernatural things that you read about that Jesus did. It strips the supernatural from Christ and inserts natural explanations for all of those phenomenon. The Jesus Seminar says that Jesus was not divine. He did not do super spiritual things. He was just a human. Well, evangelical Christians, that would be largely us, we kind of tend to take it the other way. That Jesus is so divine, He is so God, that He can never relate to our humanity. Yeah, we know He's 100% God and 100% human, but in our practical theology, what we really live out, He's so God, He doesn't know what it's like to live my life and suffer the way I do. See, we strip Jesus of His humanity Liberals strip him of his divinity. And what we see in this fifth statement is that Jesus Christ, who is God fully, did have an inexplicable mystery that no one really can define and explain. He did have full humanity. And I thirst is a proclamation that I'm suffering. I'm suffering, and I know what you're going through. Putting the humanity back into the gospel is why we do mission trips. You know, years ago, I went to Haiti, and we were sitting through all these prep classes for months, telling us what we're likely to encounter, what we will encounter, and And not once through all of those preparatory classes did I ever grieve and have my heart broken for the impoverished in Haiti. Not once. I was excited about the trip. Not until I'm sitting outside of Cap Haitia in a little country church 
with a three-year-old little Haitian boy sitting on my lap looking at me like I'm his father whose stomach is extended out to hear the sign that he's probably not going to be alive in a few years. It's then that all of a sudden, like lightning, I began to connect to the suffering that happens in Haiti. And all of a sudden, my heart could break. This is what's happening in, on the cross. This is what's happening with the Son of God. Listen, Jesus could have sat through heaven's classes and God could have explained to him, well, you know what? To be a human means to be this and to experience that. Listen, we don't learn that way. You learn best experientially. So God says, I'm going to send you and I'm going to garb you with flesh and you're going to dwell among humanity, among humanity, fully human and fully God. And you're going to suffer. And Jesus says, I'm willing to do that because this will save our people. So he could be made like his brothers, as Hebrews says, in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Listen, have you been misjudged by friends? He was too. Have you had those who were closest to you inexplicably walk away? He did too. Have you suffered terrible physical pain? So did he. Have you ever felt that God just is not there like he's forsaking you? Listen, he felt that way and he experienced God's forsakenness, something we can't experience because he promises I will never leave you or forsake you. He's experienced more humanity than we ever could. So he can look at you and your suffering and he can look at me and my suffering and he can say, I've been there and I know what you're going through and I love you and I'm going to bring you through it. Listen, have you had your children walk away from the Lord? Oh, I've wanted to gather you like a hen gathers its chicks, but you would not have me. The only time we read or the significant time we read that he wept. He knows what you're going through. He can identify with everything that you're going and you going through. And you get to this fifth statement, I thirst, and all of a sudden everything crashes in. He knows suffering. You want a high priest? By the way, a high priest brings your suffering to God and God's mercies to you. That's a high priest. He's a bridge builder. You want a bridge builder? that's never tasted your suffering? Or do you want a bridge builder that's been right into the depths of it? That's Jesus. His thirst proved his humanity. But let me, let me turn that just a little bit and show you another angle from this one word in Greek. His thirst proved his faithfulness. His thirst proved his faithfulness. Listen, haven't you ever, ever thought, this is God who's impaled on a cross. This is the God who by a word created oceans and rivers and brooks and streams and lakes and rain and fountains. This is the God who by a word can make a stream appear out of nothing right into the center of his mouth to trickle cold water down his throat. Why did he not do that? 
Well, think a little deeper even. This is Jesus, the balm of Gilead, who could have soothed his own pierced brow that was bleeding profusely, probably now coagulated. This is the great physician that by a word could have healed the stripes on his back that were rubbing up and down against that coarse wood every time he exhaled. Go back even further. This is the bread from heaven that in 40 days of fasting, though Satan wanted him to, would not take a rock and turn it into a loaf of hot bread, even though he had the power to do it. Why did the giver, why did the giver of living water suffer thirst in his crucifixion? It's one of the greatest ironies I think you can possibly contemplate. John tells us why, verse 28, if you can look at there with me. Look at the parenthetical statement. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, here it is, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And then all of a sudden, we're starting to get a little more insight. He's thirsting because this was the plan of the Father. This was the will of the Father. This was the plan that they had agreed on, Father and Son, before He even came to earth as a human being. This was how He was going to suffer. And how do we know it was the will of the Father? Because it was written into Scripture a thousand years before His crucifixion. Here's what David wrote. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. He's talking prophetically about the crucifixion of Christ. He writes a few verses later, verse 21. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. You go back to John 19, verse 29, and what do we read happens? They gave him sour wine to drink, word for word. This was the plan of the Father. This is exactly what is happening. By the way, why did they give him sour wine? Well, here's a little insight to crucifixion you'll need to know. They always kept a jar of sour wine at the base of the cross. Because if a victim that's being killed is hurling blasphemies and profanities long enough, they'll take a stick, put a sponge on it, dip it into the wine, and give it to the victim who can't help but drink it. And it's a powerful astringent which constricts your throat so you can no longer talk. They gave him sour wine when he said, I thirst. Now, if you had the power, friends, listen, you've got to get into the, get into the story. If you had the power to create water... And you're suffering the agony of dehydrating thirst. Can you appreciate the temptation of taking matters into your own hands and not doing it? Here's the one who created the waters by his word. And though his throat is so thirsty that his tongue is swollen, he does not create it because the father willed him to thirst. Listen, let me put it in our vernacular. If you've got $100 burning a hole in your pocket, and all of a sudden you see things that you've always wanted, it's a whole lot harder to resist the temptation to buy it than if you had no money to begin with. This is Jesus 
who has the power of God, and yet he withholds and restrains himself to perfectly obey the will of God that is made clear through scriptures a thousand years before. His burning thirst, friends, shows us the depth of his submission to God's will. He suffered that thirst because it was a will of God written into the word of God. He was in utter obedience to the will of God. He was fully dependent on God. This is why he says in John 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In other words, I'm most satisfied when I am most doing my father's will. That should be our cry. He reaffirmed it just hours before his crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but yours be done. I thirst shows us that he would submit to the Father's will to the very, very end, fulfilling the Scriptures. That's faithfulness. That's our example. That's where we've got to follow. His thirst proved his faithfulness. Let me turn that one more time to the third point. Not only did his thirst prove his humanity and his faithfulness, his thirst provided our satisfaction. You know, right, written 500 years ago before today, Henry Skugel said this, the soul of man has in it a raging and inextinguishable thirst. Listen, what he's saying is we have a spiritual thirst. It's built into every one of our souls. We are designed to drink living water, which in the scriptures always referred to moving water. Living water is moving water. Stale water is cistern water, holding tank water, which is a metaphor for the water of the world. The world has its water. God has its water. We're designed to thirst. And we're also designed that only God's water can satisfy that thirst. And when we drink from the water that this world provides, it only leaves us parched and spiritually dehydrated. Friends, it's no coincidence. Now think through this. Remember last week, we've got to back up just a little bit to get to this week. Do you remember last week? Jesus is almost three hours into God the Father forsaking him. That's never happened to him before. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. The Word was with God. Word is Jesus. Jesus was with God. In the Greek, that word with means he was eternally face to face. You ever been out on a date with your beloved? And you're watching the game on the television? Man, how romantic do you think that is for your wife? Yeah. <laughs> I bet the couch had a lot of use that night. You want intimacy, you've got to have face-to-face. For all of eternity, they've been face-to-face. And for the first time ever, Father God, the Holy Father, has taken His face and moved it off of His Son. (laughs) Because His Son was the sin-bearer. The holy face of God cannot look on sin, according to Amos. So for three hours, he's been forsaken by his father. He's been deserted by his father. Listen, you've got to get this. And the father's holy justice and judgment and wrath has been pouring out on the son. And the wrath of God, the judgment of God, all the way through scripture, has always been described as dry and barren. 
You don't have rain for your crops? It's because God's judging you. Don't you remember, Elijah? The series we just ran through? God withheld rain and dew for three and a half years because He was judging His people. Dryness is evidence of God's judgment. And no one was judged as seriously and severely as the Son of God when the Father poured out that ocean of dark sin upon His head and Jesus suffered the fierce heat of God's wrath. And we read in Psalm chapter 42, which I think is an allusion to Jesus at this time as a deer pants for flowing streams. So pants my soul for you, O God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? I think Jesus is saying in this Psalm, when are we going to be back? When will we be face to face again? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me continually, where is your God? That's what they were saying. If you're God, if you're the Messiah, if you're the Savior, then let God come rescue you. Friends, living apart from God will always dry your soul like a puddle in the desert sun. This was the experience of Israel who have committed two evils. They have forsaken God, the fountain of living waters, and they dug out for themselves holding tanks, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You fill your hearts with the water of the world and it leaks right out the bottom. You race after that new technology. I wonder how many people bought the new iPad yesterday, Friday thinking that this is going to fill the thirst in their soul, only to find in a few months they've got to go get the even newer iPad. You fill your heart with technology, it's going to leak right out the base. You put drugs in your body, they always have a diminishing return. So you've got to get more drugs, and you've got to get harder drugs. Pleasure feels great for a moment, but it leaves you empty afterwards. You've got people who medicate themselves because they're unable to bear the pain of their own emptiness. All of these, and many, many more, all of them are symptoms of a raging thirst in your soul. You're drinking at the wells of the water of the world listen do me a favor friends and let's us be the wise people of god in every well that the world digs put a sign over it in your mind and on that sign and write them down in your notes if you can on that sign write this if you drink of this water you will thirst again if you drink of this water you will thirst again This is entirely the appeal that Jesus makes to that Samaritan woman in John 4. Everyone who drinks of this water, he's sitting next to Jacob's well, representing the water of the world. If you drink from this water, you're going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, God is providing on the cross for our satisfaction, quenching our thirst. But let me take it one layer deeper as we wind down this sermon. There's another layer to this thirst. And it's one that has even greater consequence. Listen, the thirst that Jesus was suffering... Listen, you've got to get this. If you haven't heard anything I've said so far, at least clue in for this. 
The thirst that Jesus was suffering was the worst thirst possible. It is the thirst that someone has spending eternity in hell. Well, Pastor Tim, how do you know that? Isn't this what we see when Jesus told us of the rich man who had everything he needed in this world? He drank deeply from the world's wells. And there at his gate of his home was this poor beggar, Lazarus, that the rich man never did anything for, never demonstrated his faith in God by taking care of the poor. And he dies. The rich man dies. And he's going to Hades. Hades is the holy place of the dead until the end times when it's going to be lifted up by Christ and thrown into hell. Hades is where the dead in, apart from Christ, go. And there's a chasm across from Hades. And it separates Hades from where Abraham is. Paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. Meant that that criminal will be on this side. The other criminal will be on that side. And what is this man saying, this rich man? Let's read it. Being in torment. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, don't, he didn't say, find a way out of here for me. Help me get out of here. He wasn't praying that. He wasn't asking that. He said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue because what he's saying in the full rage of spiritual dehydration is I am thirsty. It's what people say in Hades. Listen, if you could go for five minutes to Hades, And come back, what you're going to report in horror is that this person's saying, I am thirsty. This person's saying, I am thirsty. And there's a cacophony of people saying, I am thirsty. There's a din of chaotic cries about, I am thirsty. You're going to come back saying, that's all they are in Hades is thirsty. This is why Matthew Henry wrote that great commentator. He wrote, The torments of hell are represented by a violent thirst. To that everlasting thirst, we had all been condemned if Christ had not suffered on the cross. So here we see Jesus on the cross, and here's the layer. He's suffering the literal thirst of hell. He's suffering what you would experience if you went to hell for eternity. He's suffering the full pain and agony of hell. And he cries out, I am thirsty. And what he suffered was for our behalf. Friends, listen, Jesus suffered thirst so that you will never have to. In fact, his is a greater thirst than the worst person in hell will ever experience. The greater the judgment of God, the greater his wrath. You don't think hell has levels to it? Read the scriptures. And no one had the severity of God's judgment poured out on them like Jesus, who bore the cumulative sin of every person who would ever believe on him. He took on himself the thirst of utter forsakenness, the thirst of hell, so that anyone who will turn to him in faith will never have to say those words. 
That's the promise, by the way, of eternal life. You can see it behind me on the screen. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. In that eternal life, he says, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb is in the midst of the throne, who is in the midst of the throne, will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. Do you remember? You're there. You're on Golgotha. Do you remember? And you can see the bloody cross and you can see the cracked lips of Jesus and you can see his heaving and his dehydrated agony and your ears pick up what he can barely say. I thirst and friends, what you're hearing from the mouth of Jesus when he says it is hope. And you're about to see that hope in action. Don't you remember what the scripture says happened? You can see it in your text, John 19. One of the soldiers heard him say it. And they went and they took a hyssop branch. Listen, there are all sorts of trees. Why is John so particular to tell us it's a hyssop branch? Don't you remember where we've seen hyssop back in Exodus, back in Egypt? The tenth plague, the night that the angel of death will be loosed by God and he will go throughout Israel and Egypt and he will strike down with his sword the firstborn male in every home unless you take an innocent lamb and sacrifice it and dip that hyssop hyssop branch with that little blossom bundle at the end, dip it into the blood of that lamb and paint your doorpost up, across, and down. And when the angel of death sees the blood, he will skip over your home to the next. One of the soldiers takes a hyssop branch. Now you're hearing the gospel. And he puts a sponge on the end of it and dips it in the sour wine and brings it to the bleeding lips of Jesus. But we're meant to see the hyssop branch. No other gospel writer mentions it. Because right now, Jesus is the innocent lamb. And his blood is pouring down that cross. And friends, if you paint that blood on the doorpost of your heart in faith, the wrath of God skips over you and lands right on the sun who willingly took it, who thirsted so that you never, ever will suffer thirst for eternity. And it's a free gift. He died for us. He died in place of us, taking our guilt and our blame. He was forsaken so that we would never be forsaken. He took upon him the thirst of hell so that you will never thirst again. That's the love that Jesus Christ has for you. So it's with very, very careful attention that we end with Revelation 22, the great invitation from God himself. The spirit and the bride say, come, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. It's a free offer of salvation. He is saying that to every person here. Would you close your eyes for a moment? This, these messages are the gospel. And these seven statements, friends, is the entire gospel. There's nothing missing from the gospel message that's not in these statements. 
And they were uttered from the cross, from the lips of Jesus, so that you will be saved. God's mercy would open your eyes. Now I ask you to close your eyes, not because I'm going to do anything weird. Not because I'm going to ask you to get out of your pew, I'm not. So you can focus and hear from God without distraction. Listen, if you are thirsty, if your soul is thirsty, and you know you have not yet drank from the living water, the Spirit of God is telling you, come and drink. And I want to show you how to do that. Would you please just raise your hand? Everybody's eyes are closed. If your soul is thirsty and you know it, would you raise your hand? I see that hand. I see those hands. I see that hand. I see that hand as well. Keep, keep going. Be honest, please. I see that hand. I see that hand. Anymore. I'm going to pray for you. Anymore. I see it. God sees your hands. And He is saying, It's about time. I have wanted you for so long. And I've got water for your soul that will save you for eternity. Listen, I don't know what you what church environment you were brought up in, but if you were taught that there is a special prayer that you have to pray, a formula, I'm here to tell you there's not one. There's not one. If there was, it would be written into the pages of Scripture. It's not. Can you recognize your soul is thirsty? Can you cry out to God and say, my soul is thirsty? I have sinned. And I believe, Jesus, that you died on the cross to take away my sins. And I want that blood painted on my soul. And I want living water in my heart. I want to spend eternity with you. If that's you, then just say that to God. And whatever words he gives you, whatever words you come up with, just give your life to God in faith. Let me pray for you. And you can pray the prayer that I pray, or you can pray whatever words come to your own heart. But listen to this as I pray for you. Father, Lord, you have designed our souls to thirst so that we would find our way to you, the living water. We've been drinking from the world and it's not satisfied. Living water will. Lord, I have sinned so many times. I need the blood of Jesus Christ painted onto the doorposts of my heart. And I trust, thank you for your mercy, Jesus. I trust, Father, that your wrath will go onto your Son who willingly took it so that I wouldn't have to. Will you please forgive me and give me that living water, that free gift. I don't need to work for it. I don't need to earn it. I don't need to clean up my life until you're ready to give it. It's a free gift. God, please give that to me and teach me how to walk faithfully with you. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.